If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Allison, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 238 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for what is sure to be the classicest of classic conversations for the ages. My guest today is comedian Greg Baldwin. Greg and I talk comedy, his podcast, Second Chances. Greg tours with Jay Moore and Daryl Hammond. He's quite the comedy success story. But before that story, Greg was an addict, and this is also a story of redemption. You're going to love it. It's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, just want to remind everyone, episode 236 with Jeffrey C. Sherman. We're talking the Sherman Brothers, Spoonful of Sugar, Mary Poppins, Boy Meets World, Wendy Liebman, so much. Great episode. Do not miss it. But right now, the Do Not Miss event of the year is my conversation with Greg Baldwin. Get ready to be inspired. Enjoy. All right, everyone, I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, actor and comedian, Greg Baldwin. Welcome to the show. Why? <laughs> great to be here, Jeff. Great to, great to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's very nice to meet you. It's always nice to meet a fellow comic. I want to kick off by reading a couple of things on your website, which I found fascinating. There's three quotes on your website. I'm sure the story's behind them. One is, everything good in my life has been a direct result of helping another human being, and that's Danny Trejo. And mm. then you also have the quote, a life is not important except in the impact it has on others, Jackie Robinson. Then the one I really want to unpack, I was Joe Manganiello's meth coach for the movie <laughs> Arch Enemy. Those are your three, too inspirational. And then this one's like, all right. There's stories behind all of them. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll start with the Jackie Robinson. The, the Jackie Robinson one, I actually saw that quote. I was walking into Dodger Stadium. I saw that on the wall at the stadium. And uh, I just loved it. And the reason that quote stands out to me is because I uh, I had a problem with uh, drugs, crystal meth, what, once we'll talk about the meth coach story, but uh, just drugs and alcohol all my life, you know, since I was a little kid. And it finally caught up to me when I was 36. And, you know, I started smoking meth probably around 30, 31. And uh, I lost everything, man. I had a career in broadcasting at CBS and I, I lost that career. And I ended up 118 pounds. My was basically living out of my car, sometimes my parents and house and friends' couches. But I lost my career. I lost everything. And, uh, I, uh, I ended up getting sober when I, on Valentine's Day of 2007. My whole life, I've always been a giver. And a, I think, you know, relatively, you know, I'm a good person and stuff. And uh, I've always lived under the assumption before I got sober that life was about pleasure. And the more pleasure that I got, the happier I would be. So I was always seeking pleasure for happiness. And after I gotten sober, worked a recovery program, I had realized that the true source, source of happiness is being of service to other people. So that's how I kind of try to live my life. So, you know, everything, all my outside things in my life 
in some result have a direct impact on others. When, you know, one, I, I'm sober, I help new people that get sober. Number two, I have a podcast. It, I, haven't, I haven't done any episodes in uh, about a year, but uh, I'll be relaunching it called Second Chances. And it's, it's stories of people who got a second chance in life. And number three, I'm a stand-up comedian. So I travel and I bring happiness and joy and laughter to people. And I've come to realize that, you know, the true source of happiness and self-esteem and self-worth and, you know, one, one of the main reasons why we're all on this planet is to, is to be of service to others. Hence, Jackie Robinson. <laughs> That's a great mantra to live your life by. And I mean, for anyone to live their life by, I think we all aspire to be good and help others. You know, I'm a firm believer in the rising tide helps everybody. There's so many people out there that think you're eating from the same pie and, and they don't see it as an expanding pie theory. And the expanding pie theory is, is the reality of life. The more good you do, the more opportunities there are for everybody. So yeah. I, I try to live my life that way as well, the best I can. A couple of things. One, my, my first comedy mentor, a guy named Ant, he was judge on the last comic standing. He told me at the beginning, uh, when I started doing stand-up, he said, um, there's enough room for everybody. So just always root for everybody. There's, you know, you're not you're in competition with the other comedians because there's plenty of room for all of you. So do what you can to support other comedians and be that kind of guy. And the other thing that uh, jumped in mind, you said a rising, a rising tide. What's it? What is it? A rising, a rising tide. tide helps all the boats or something like that. No. I'm forgetting. <laughs> that was a good call. It was a good call. That brought to mind one of my another quote I had recently heard: "A lighthouse doesn't go out in the ocean seeking boats." So, in order for for me to be a service and be, you know, I have to turn my light on and I have to be a good example. And you know, you can't give something away that you don't have. Life is, you know, we're continually evolving. I'm trying to become a better person, but I can honestly say, because of my sobriety and you know what I've learned in the past 15 years of being sober. Uh, I am definitely now the best version of myself I've ever been. That's an amazing story. Can we go backwards in time? Like, how did you get caught up in uh, becoming a meth addict at 30, 31? You had a, a lot of life behind you at that point. Was there like a trigger moment that kind of just put you down this spiral path before sobriety? Yeah, well, I've always like my my first memory growing up was my mom gave me Flintstone vitamins. And I remember I liked them so much. Uh, I waited till she was gone. I ate the whole bottle. And so I've always been compulsive. And, you know, the question is, you know, the chicken or the egg, can you do enough drugs to become an addict or is it something you're born with in your genes? And for me, I've always been compulsive and whatever I think me personally, I think I have a reaction in my brain that's different, you know, in the pleasure center than normal people do. And I get compulsive. And so when I started drinking and using drugs and I was probably fifth grade or some sixth grade, something like that something happened, man, you know, and it just, it made me feel, I remember thinking when I was in, you know, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, like, I remember taking drugs. And I remember thinking, like, how could something that, that feels this good be bad? Like, this cannot be bad. This is not bad. This is amazing. And, you know, and I just started using it and I was able to, uh, I was a good athlete, I was able to function in society and party on the weekends and, you know, and stuff like that. But I went to my first rehab when I was 19. I got sober for a little while. I ended up playing four years of college baseball and graduating college. I went to work for CBS selling radio advertising and for my favorite rock station and Howard Stern advertising. And I was always, you know, relatively successful. But what happened at the beginning of the end to answer your question was I was drinking a lot. I started blacking out. I stopped drinking as much. I started doing a lot of ecstasy and then the ecstasy hangovers were killing me and I started doing more coke and then I was getting paranoid and there always had to be something. And, you know, there was always weed too. I smoked weed every day. So that was my like crutch. 
pretty much every day I was drinking or using or, you know, doing something. I had to do something. And, you know, the weekdays in order to perform, be a, a member of society, you know, weed would temper me throughout the week. And then I do the hard drugs and alcohol on the weekends. But slowly but surely, I was dating this girl and uh, I was working at CBS and I came back. I was on a trip in Mexico and she was at my house when I got back and I found a meth pipe on her. And uh, I confronted her with it. And I'm like, oh my God, you smoke this stuff? Like, and she's like, yeah. And I'm like, and I remember thinking to myself, like, oh my God, like I'm dating a junkie. Right. You know, and uh, that's what I thought or a tweaker would probably be the proper term. But um, she asked me if I want to try it. And I'm like, OK. And I'd snorted speed before, but I'd never smoked it. And I took a hit off it. And man, you know, it was the greatest feeling ever. It was like whatever, you know, imagine, you know, the thing in your life that gives you the most physical pleasure. You know, imagine like walking off the stage, you know, after you just kill or chocolate or sex or whatever it is that your favorite thing in the world is. And then times that by a thousand. That's the feeling it got for me. And then I started using it periodically. And over a period of about five, five years, uh, it became a daily habit. And uh, I lost everything, including several teeth. Yeah. Meth is not kind to teeth. Meth is not kind to teeth. So my dad was a, a dentist. He would always say if people came in without teeth, he had two questions. He says, do you do meth or do you drink Mountain Dew? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because uh, Mountain Dew, if uh, if you want to look like a meth addict down a, those quarts of Mountain Dew nonstop, that's why. But the, uh, cause it just, it wrecks. Anyway, I, sorry. Oh, that, no, that's, that's very interesting. It's interesting that you say that, you know, it's like, I've never really done, I've never done drugs. So I, I only can kind of draw some comparisons. So if I, I'm not trying to draw a comparison, I'm just trying to relate uh, in my own life. But one time I was having these chest pains and I went to the ER and my cousin gave me a shot of Motrin and the emote. And I remember it was probably 15 years ago and I can still remember the feeling of the wave going across my chest and the pain disappearing. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, (laughs) I could see where somebody could get really hopped up on that feeling. But I mean, like with food, it's a a similar thing, I think. They talk about utility, right? Where Mm -hmm. like you take a bite of that chocolate chip cookie and you're just chasing the feeling of the enjoyment of the first bite when you're finishing the whole thing. And so it's, I imagine hearing like a Matthew Perry interviews recently and stuff like that, that it's like you're you're chasing it and chasing it, and then it suddenly it becomes not enough, not enough, not enough, and yeah. you just have to keep doing more and more and more, and it just oof. you know. And it's like I was a good kid, man, and uh, growing up, and you know all the dreams and aspirations to do great things. I never imagined my plan wasn't to become a drug addict, on, you know, that couldn't function in society. That was never in my plans. You know, it just creeps up on you, and then you know, next thing you know, you're you're in, and it's like a lot of people that don't have addiction will say, "Well, just stop." You know, can't you see you're ruining your life? And if it was that easy, you know, we would all stop because nobody wants to lose everything. And, you know, you I mean, you look at a, you look at a mother that loses her kids and still can't stop drinking or using there. You know, there's something more. You know, I, I lost the power of choice. It's hard to explain. But if I could just quit and be normal, you know, on my own and just go back to be, living a normal life, I, I would have done it. But, you know, I needed I needed professional help. But yeah, it's it's tough. It's a, you know, addiction's a tough one, man. A lot of people die from it. And I'm one of the survivors. You know, 15 years without a drink or a drug for me, somebody that like me is it's a freaking miracle. That's amazing. 15 years. Congratulations. That's yeah, who was there or did you recognize yourself that you couldn't function anymore and got you help or on the path to help? Yeah. So what happened was I was um 
I was supposed to be at my friend uh, Maddie's wedding in Vegas. He gave me the money for the ticket. I spent the money on drugs and I got arrested that night. The night I was supposed to be in his wedding, I was in jail. I remember him telling me, you ruined my wedding. And I was like, oh my God, just total devastation. And the charge was possession of you know, a controlled stub- substance. So they were going to do a Prop 36 where if you stay clean or whatever, I couldn't stay clean. And then finally my probation officer told me, you know, or the guy told me that one more dirty test, you're going to jail. You know, you'll do a few months or whatever. And they only found like a tiny little bit of meth, but they gave me the option to rehab or jail and I chose to rehab and, and I've been clean ever since. I didn't, to be honest with you, I didn't think I was ever going to be able to get clean. And, and to be, I was so far gone that I, I really didn't even want to get clean. I was just going to ride it out to the bitter end. It was like I was on the Titanic and I was sinking and I knew I was going to die. And then I just was resided to the fact that it was over and, and I was going to ride to the bitter end. But I checked myself into rehab on February 13th of 2007. And, uh, and I've been clean ever since. And, you know, now I got a good life. And I'll tell you one thing, your dad's a dentist. You said your dad's a dentist. So I was missing a few teeth. I've always had a lot of problems with my teeth. When I first got sober, about, I don't know, three years, four years into sobriety, my teeth were all messed up. But I, I started, I went on to eHarmony and uh, on my third eHarmony date, I met a dentist <laughs> and she, she was beautiful. She was amazing. And, and then it was weird because at the same time that I started dating the dentist, well, we dated for a couple of years, but she, uh, I had a great aunt that I had never met. And so she had passed away. She was in Canada. She had no kids. So she left all the cousins in the will. And so my dad's like, oh, you'll probably get 500 bucks or something. And it turns out I got 18,000. And I spent all the 18,000 to get a new set of teeth. So I got veneers, I got six implants, I got root canal, I, I got it all fixed. So I got a, I got a new set of teeth. So well, you look great. Thanks. Right. Let's do a smile off. Right. We'll get this on video. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in my comedy, I do a joke about the dentist. And the joke is, you know, we started, you know, she started off to work on my teeth and it was amazing. And <laughs> we started having relationship problems because you know, she started making me floss after every meal and brush my teeth five times a day. And then she told me I had to quit drinking coffee. So I knew the relationship was over, but I hung in there for an extra year and a half because I still needed two root canals and a bridge. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that's the joke. The true story is... That's no joke. Insurance doesn't cover any of that. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. But the true story is I paid for my teeth and she she did them and then she referred me out to some people and... uh she really didn't start working on my teeth very much until we broke up. And then I stuck with her, which which is ridiculous. I don't know why. Don't if you if you're dating a dentist and you guys break up, don't keep going back her to have your fix your teeth. It's not a good idea. Oh no, she like little slips with that little pokey thing. Nobody the dentist oh, yeah. has like these dangerous Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, yeah. Greg. Did that hurt? Did I just yeah. break your gums like you broke my heart? Yeah. She, I swear to God, she she did a, a deep cleaning on me and she didn't use Novocaine. And it was the worst pain I've ever had. Like it, and like it was. I almost, I, I like, I almost got out of the chair and ran. I don't know why I didn't, but I like it was the worst. I've spent combined total of about a year sitting in the dentist uh, chair my whole life. It was torture, and I guess she was having a bad day. But it, I'd never felt any pain as excruciating as, as that day at the dentist chair. And then, uh, uh, you know, shortly after, I found a new, new dentist. <laughs> God bless her. You know, I'm sure she didn't know, but I kept. I said. I go, it hurts. It hurts. And she's like, I remember she's like, she said, it's supposed to. And I'm like, oh my God, it was, oh, anyway. Oh, wow. Instead of teeth. So it's, uh, it's awesome. It all worked out. It all worked out. You look great. So (laughs) sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Greg Baldwin. I know some of you might be running out to get a new dentist, but the rest of you, I just want to thank you for your support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. 
And now back to my inspirational conversation with Greg Baldwin. We're moving on to quote number two. Thank you. That was the first quote. You want to hear the second quote? Yes. Is that the Dan? Are we on to Danny Trejo now? Yes, we're on to Danny Trejo. So the second quote is, everything good in my life has come as a direct result of helping another human being. That quote, uh, I've heard in public speaking, and I heard that quote. And that quote is really important to me because, you know, how I became a stand-up comedian is I was at a recovery meeting one night and this, my friend Glenn introduces me to this newcomer who had like 30 days off cocaine or something. And uh, he introduces me. And after the recovery meeting, he said to me, he goes, will you give this guy a ride home? And I thought to myself, why don't you give him a ride home? Why are you asking me? You got a car, you know, and uh, why are you asking me? But uh, I said, yes, I gave this guy a ride home. Turns out his car is broken down. And I'm like, do you need help getting to meetings? And he's like, yeah. So I started picking up this newcomer up and I started taking him to meetings and I would always go get coffee before the meeting and he wouldn't, he wouldn't order anything. So I asked him, I'm like, are you broke? And he's like, yeah. I said, uh, do you have groceries at home? And he's like, no. And so I'm like, all right, I'll take a grocery shop. And, and I asked him, I go, where do you, where do you shop? This dude took me to Whole Foods. <laughs> he took me to Whole Foods and bought like a little, a little tiny basket for like a hundred bucks. It was crazy. And, uh, but it was all right. I just did my part. I got him some groceries and I started taking him to meetings and uh, we became friends. And then it uh, turns out he was a stand up comedian and he invited me to go to one of his shows. I went to a show and uh, I'd been in the, the Actors Theater of San Francisco, I'd done a lot of plays and short films and voiceovers, but I'd never. I used to go to the comedy store and sit by myself and watch comedians. Never did it cross my mind to ever be a comedian. Never The thought not, even never crossed my mind because I didn't think I was funny or creative enough to write. But anyway, uh, he invites me to the show and then half the comedians were, it was like a beginner show. Half the comedians were terrible, like really terrible. And I made a joke after I'm like, dude, I could tell drug stories be as funny as half of these guys. And because I had done so much public speaking in the, in the jails and rehabs and stuff. And so um, he's like, do you want to try it? And I'm like, uh okay so he put me up at this beginner show it's they're called bringer shows which they're really terrible shows but the worst the worst you know he put me up at this bringer show and i told some drug stories and then i wrapped up i wrapped it up with like a recovery message and he said uh the host comes back up and then people all these people high five me up when i got up the stage and i was really terrible but the host comes back up and he's like he's like holy shit i didn't know this was an aa meeting and everybody started laughing. And that was on September 12th of 2013. And I just, I've been doing it ever since. I ended up doing a show at the comedy store in the main room, one of the most famous comedy clubs in the in the, in the world, if not the most. And uh, the heritage with, you know, all the, the history, you know, at that club. And I, you know, I'm sitting in the main room behind the curtain of the most famous comedy club in the world where Richard Pryor and Jay Leno and Letterman and Robin Williams and, you know, all the greats have walked through the, this curtain and I'm sitting behind the curtain, I'm hosting the show and I'm talking to Bill Burr and I'm about to walk on the stage and introduce Bill Burr. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, oh my God, like, how did this happen? And I was still a pretty new comedian and uh, he dropped into our show. I wasn't on the bill with him, but he uh, dropped in. And I remember thinking to myself, like, how did this happen? And it all happened because one night I gave a newcomer a ride home. And what would happen that day if I was selfish or self-centered or I said no or whatever? So my whole life changed from giving a newcomer a ride home. And it's now, you know, it's my passion. It's my career. And I, I tour and it's, in, it's incredible. And it comes back to Danny Trejo's quote, everything good in my life has come as a direct result of helping another human being. And that's how I became a comedian. That's an amazing story. You know, one of the cool things about interviewing people for the podcast is everyone has their version of that story. 
I don't know that they all necessarily have pinpointed it just yet, but a lot of the people I talk to have that moment where they can say, this was that moment where had I not gone left instead of right, I don't know what I would be doing today. It's an amazing when you can, I think, kind of reflect on that moment and then learn from it and then try and be that for other people as well. So I think that's wonderful. Thanks. So that's that's why that quote's so important to me. And it's my he's my favorite public speaker. You know, I, I've heard him speak publicly num- numerous times. And he's just, his, his message is powerful. And you know, what's really interesting about Danny Trejo, he had the same story. He was helping a newcomer and the newcomer called him about midnight, woke him up and was on a movie set and said, I'm, I'm going to use, you know, cocaine. I, I, I'm not doing well. So Danny Trejo got out of bed, went and met this guy on set and helped him. And in, it was a movie, it was called Runaway, Runaway Train, I think. No, no, it was, it's a movie with Eric Roberts. And it was about boxing. He was on set, you know, helping this guy. And he ran into this guy he was in prison with in San Quentin. And it turns out the guy in Quentin was, you know, working on this movie, was a writer or something on this movie, recognized Danny. And Danny Trejo was like one of the champion boxers at San Quentin. And it was a movie about there. It was a boxing match. And so, and I guess the guy that Eric Roberts was boxing against, terrible. So he said, hey, can you train this guy? Can you work with him? And then finally, the director said, you know what? I'm just going to, I want you to fight him. And so he replaced the guy and he ended up uh, fighting Eric Roberts in the movie. And that was his very first movie role. And it was because he got out of bed at midnight and helped a newcomer. That's amazing. Runaway Train, 1985. Runaway Train. That's it. Yeah. Yep. 1985. That was Danny Trejo's very first movie. Same story as mine. It all happened. His whole life changed from helping a a newcomer. That's really cool about Danny Trejo. And then then the final quote... I was Joe Manganiello's meth coach for the movie Arch Enemy. Yeah. So how that happened is uh, uh, I'm good friends with Joe. He's a good friend of mine. And he calls me up, I don't know, about three years ago or something. And he says, uh, he goes, hey, I got a weird question for you. And I'm like, okay. And Joe, and by the way, Joe Manganiello was, he was uh, a dancer at Magic Mike. He was in True Blood. He was a werewolf in True Blood. He's married to Sophia Vergara. And uh, Flash Thompson in uh, the OG Spider-Man series. Yeah, he was Flash Thompson. Yep. And uh, that was a long time ago. He, uh, so, you know, he's very, very handsome, good actor. And a friend of mine calls me up and he's like, hey, he goes, I got a weird question for you. And I'm like, okay. And he says, hey, I'm shooting this movie. And in the movie, I use crystal meth. And uh, I've never done it before. And I was wondering if you could work with me on that. And so I'm like, okay. So I started working with him on, you know, talk. I, we had like an hour conversation on the phone about math and this and that. Calls me up like a month later. He goes, hey, I'm shooting that scene. It's like hitting. I'm like, oh, you want me to come on set with you? And he's like, yeah. And so uh, I go on set. The movie's called Arch Enemy. You can download it on some of the stream, streaming sites, Arch Enemy. And in the movie, he plays a superhero. In the scene, he puts meth on his hand, he snorts the meth, and he kills all these drug dealers, right? Well, the, the premise, this doesn't make any difference to the story, but the premise is he doesn't have powers on Earth. So you don't know if he's crazy or if he's just, or he's a really a superhero. So, But he does the meth, he kills all these drug dealers. So they shoot the scene. I go on set with him, and he's like in like these Superman, like, uh, you know, superhero gear sit in the trailer and we're talking you know for hours until a scene and it was just amazing but we he's shooting the scene he puts me we go on set he stands me right next to the director and in the scene he snorts the meth he kills all these drug dealers or whatever no he snorts this thing and he does this scene right they shoot the scene director yells cut joe walks right over to me next to the director and says how was that and uh and he starts asking me my advice about it or whatever and uh he ended up going on the Conan O'Brien show and he told the story how he had to hire a meth coach 
which was me. What the real bizarre thing was is um, he invited me to go to the movie premiere and it was still COVID. So the movie theaters hadn't opened up. I was had to drive in. And I ended up sitting shotgun in Joe Manganiello's SUV, eating pizza with Joe, watching him on the big screen, snorting meth that I coached him how to do. <laughs> yeah, and then he went on the Conan O'Brien show. I do a whole bit in my comedy about it, but it's obviously exaggerated in my comedy. But he ended up uh, going on the Conan O'Brien show and he told the story how he had to hire a meth coach. Yeah, I think he told the story on Tonight Show too. So if you watch, I'm going to give your listeners uh, an assignment. If you watch Arch Enemy with Joe Meganello at the end of the movie at the credits, hit pause and go as slow as you can. And you're going to see special assistant to Mr. Manganello, Greg Baldwin. Now you guys are in the know. That is not special assistant. That is actually meth coach. Or you can go to IMDb and see the credits. But uh, that's how meth coach came, came about. Kind of uh, actor, comedian, meth coach. Right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, well, out of context, uh, one might get the wrong idea there. But that's, uh, that's good that you were there for your friend Joe. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And he killed the scene, too. It was awesome. So I think I'm the very first uh, meth coach in the history of the world. So what was some of the advice you gave, Joe? What what makes a good fake meth snorting acting portrayal? So, you know, he does this story how, you know, he was like you mentioned, he was in Spider-Man and, uh, and he had this career, but he was uh, he wasn't working. And his friend said, you know, you got to get another job. And he ended up doing con- like this construction and he was he was shoveling dirt. And he said, you know what? He goes, I'm going to be the best dirt shoveler there is. And he, he said one day he was just in the sun and he was just shoveling the dirt and he's with all these other workers and they're like, they're like, slow down, man. You know, there's, you know, when you finish this, there's going to be another thing of dirt, man. Just, and then he ended up, he just said, he was just like, like this, you know, and I remember him telling that story. And then he said he was helping move something and like the fridge fell out of the truck and he's a big, strong guy. And he said, he just grabbed the fridge and he just held the fridge and he, and he just felt powerful and just, almighty in that moment and those two moments of the shoveling dirt and being the best dirt shoveler and grabbing the fridge that fell off the truck and just holding it and i said imagine that you know when you're using meth that you know what happens with the physical reaction that happens in your brain is it releases all the chemicals in your brain that says you're you're okay you know you could be i was 118 pounds missing teeth i I smoke meth and i feel like oh my god i'm going to take over the world and so what happened i just imagine that you're shoveling that dirt or you catch that fridge and that feeling of ultimate power, like and that rush of just like that. And then times that by a hundred. Imagine that when you snort meth and it gives you that type of power and strength. And so that was my that was my advice to him to kind of relate his personal life to what meth, how it makes you feel. Got All right. Very cool. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> an interesting story it's the but it, yeah it's funny joe coined the term he actually coined the term meth coach that's awesome so all right before i want to hear about comedy but before we go there let's let's talk about your podcast real quick because I, I think it's tied into your second it's called yeah. second chances it's kind of tied into your recovery and talking with others about their stories yeah so it's it's second chances and you can find it at the my website secondchances.tv or all the streaming sites it's everywhere second chances and it's stories of people who got a second chance in life i started it with aunt who was a judge on the last comic standard we started it and then i had a couple different co-hosts but uh, i haven't released any episodes i'm going to relaunch it soon the reason i started it is my dream and my goal in life is to bring hope and inspiration to the world and to use my gifts you know my second chance in life to you know to bring hope and inspiration so i start we started this podcast and it's just interesting stories with you know i've had people that I had Carney Wilson from Wilson Phillips, whose dad was Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, telling sure. the story how 
you know, her, I think she was addiction to food and her, that stuff and her, how her father had tried to give her heroin when she was 16. And, you know, that was interesting. And then I've had Joe Manganello on, we talked about the meth coach story, but also him telling the story, how he, in a flag football game, caught a touchdown from Joe Montana, which was really cool. And then I've had people with autism. I had a guy with autism on. I had a woman that dealt with autism. I've had cancer survivors. I've had actors and love stories. And I had a medium on that supposedly can communicate with spirits and just a wide range of different topics. And, you know, it's really interesting. And, you know, and I'm sure you get this from doing your podcast. It's fascinating talking to interesting people and hearing the obstacles they've overcome in their lives and their outlook on lives. And it's just really incredible. I really, really enjoy it. And so I stopped during the pandemic. I stopped doing it. So I'm going to relaunch it soon. I, I just love it. Yeah, I love it too. I, I saw you had a few past guests of my podcast have been on yours as well. Amber Catan, Christine yeah, Blackburn, yeah. Alonzo Bowden. Alonzo, yeah. yeah. Good folks there. So yeah, it's it's really, it's fun to kind of peel back and have real conversations with people. Two comedians talking and not being funny. What? Yeah, because you know what? <laughs> There's a lot more to the story. And, and to me, like, that's really what it's all about. That's really kind of what people want to hear and yeah. walk away with. Everyone wants to be inspired at some level. So you should definitely start it back up. It's funny you I stopped will. during the pandemic because that's when most people started. <laughs> yeah, I was doing it for the during the pandemic for a little while. And then towards the end, I stopped. And the, what happened is I moved and then my soundboard stopped working. And so I got to I got to fix that. But I wanted to start doing video and set up video cameras and talking to video promos and stuff. I've had all these incredible, wonderful guests and stories and stuff, but I got no video of it. So I wanted to set up a little studio and I just haven't gotten around to it. So yeah, and I've been I've been touring a lot and doing a lot of stand up. So it's coming. Definitely make that a priority because I think the world it would be a better place with it. Thank you. So one of your guests on the podcast, and then I think is a good kind of bridge to the comedy, Daryl Hammond. Yeah. You work a lot with him of Saturday Night Live fame, but pretty much a legend, a Saturday Night Live. I think legend's legend. a fair a fair word. Yeah. Yeah. So Daryl and I met at a, a lunch with a, a friend of mine. I ended up sitting next to him and I asked him to do the podcast and he said, yeah. And, you know, we were in contact and his story is phenomenal. Some people do know this. A lot of people don't. He suffered some extreme severe childhood. There's a documentary out about him. It's called Daryl Hammond, Cracked Up Daryl Hammond Story. It's on Amazon Prime now. It was on Netflix for a long time. And uh, it chronicles his life, you know, growing up and the trauma and it going back to his, his childhood home where he experienced all the trauma. And just a real fascinating guy. And so he has a lot of empathy for people that are going through difficulties. And November 29th of 2019, my, my brother passed away, my older brother. He called and texted me every day to check on me. He's the only one that did that. Yeah, I don't expect anybody to do that, but he did that because he has so much empathy. And we just bonded. We became really good friends. And over the pandemic, he was the only person I hung out with. You know, I mean, we were all scared to be around anybody because, you know, we didn't know if everyone's going to die or whatever. Him and I were the only, so we would go on drives. We'd go out to the beach and just drive out and sit in the car and talk and go get, you know, you couldn't eat inside restaurants, we'd go get food and, you know, eat outside. So we just became good friends. And I'd done a bunch of shows with him before. And then he asked me to do some tour dates with him. And then right before we were supposed to go to Zany's in Chicago, pandemic hit. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm finally a touring comedian. I'm going to tour with Daryl Hammond. And now the pandemic, like this is brutal. But so then we started hanging out during the pandemic and became good friends. And and then the pandemic ended. And so I just started touring all over and, and he's been my, you know, mentor for me and a good friend. And uh, that's how it started is because he had empathy because I had lost my brother. He told me like, I'd be torn with 
14 year cast member of Saturday Night Live learning from him and and getting, you know, he gives me advice and this and that. And it's just freaking like bizarre. It's just really bizarre. And, you know, and I get 25 minutes, 30 minutes sometimes, you know, when I tour with them. So it's like, you can't get that time amount of time on shows in LA. It's just so much invaluable experience. And I've become a real good comedian as a result. Very sorry about your brother. Okay. He's in a better place. People say it, but it's true. He had a tough life. He's in a better place. You know, all the stuff we've been talking about, the universe, it's like, you know, putting someone like Daryl in your path, something like that happens to help you get through it too. You know, I think there's sometimes more than one reason for everything that happens. So yeah, did uh, God, I've done, I've traveled all over. We just did East Coast. We did uh, Naples, Florida. We did uh, Jacksonville. We did South Carolina, which was cool. We did a week in Vegas. It, you know, it was really cool. I, we did a week in Vegas at the uh, Tropicana at the Laugh Factory, and so we did eight shows in four nights. I got my name on the, on the in the big lights on the Sunset Strip. I mean, on the Vegas Strip, which is the coolest thing ever. And then, uh, how many photos uh, did you take of that? <laughs> Oh, like a man, like me, you know, the, yeah. the you know, the, the, of course, the one where I'm standing under the sign with my finger pointing to it. it was, you know, this is my first time that ever happened. It was uh, just, it was so cool. And then uh, to Denver, oh man, best comedy club in the world. It was uh, Comedy Works and sold out crowds of like 400. It's like a little mini theater and and uh, Daryl's got standing ovations and Vancouver, Canada, Jay Moore. I also toured the guy named Jay Moore is also on Saturday Night Live. And he was, I love Jay Moore. He does the, uh, I think everyone credits him with having like the breakthrough Christopher Walken impression. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Christopher Walken, and then he uh, he was in Jerry Maguire. Oh yeah, yeah. I know Jay Moore. I know Jay. I love Jay. Yeah. I love Jay Moore. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'll tell you an interesting story about those two. Is we did, I did a show. So one night, Daryl and I were doing Laugh Factory in San Diego. Daryl had to do a radio interview. And so we're driving to the radio interview. I turn on the radio and I hear Jay Moore on the same radio morning show that Daryl's going to be on shortly. And so I text Jay, I'm friends with Jay. I text him. I'm like, hey, Daryl and I are coming in. So don't leave. So we ended up meeting and talking and uh, we're like, hey, let's go get breakfast. So we went out to breakfast. I'm sitting at the breakfast table with two. I mean, they're both legends, right? Jay's Jay's a fucking phenomenal comedian, great impressionist. A lot of people don't know as well, but he's phenomenal. And and they start telling SNL stories, right? And I'm like, this is nuts, right? I'm sitting at breakfast with these two guys and they're, you know, who I'm friends with both, but I'm just listening to these stories. And then they start doing impressions back and forth. (laughs) And I'm like, this is insane. And Jay says to Daryl, hey, we should, let's do a show, you know, with the impressions. And so they're like, Daryl's like, yeah. So I ended up putting together a lunch when we got, when when I got back and we had a series of lunches and and workarounds. And then we end end up, we end up putting together the show, an impression show where I moderate it and it's Daryl and Jay doing impressions back and forth. So I'll lead them into it. I'll be like, you know, Der- uh, Jay, you worked with Academy Award winner Christopher Walken in Suicide Kings. What was that like? And then it leads them into the story. Then I'd say to Daryl, Daryl, you worked with, you performed for five presidents. Who, Which was the first president you met in the Oval Office? And it leads them into George Bush. And then so I went back and forth. But they both have about 50 to 75 impressions. And so we started doing the show at the Improv and Flappers. And it, like, there's a huge buzz about it. And then one of the last shows we came up with Speed Round. And then speed round, we, we could never get through all the impressions. So I started saying Kermit the Frog. And then Jay would do Kermit the Frog. And then I'd say Foghorn Leghorn. And then and I go back and forth. And it was just, it was brilliant. So we did a series of shows and there's a big buzz about it. We put it down for a little bit. We're hoping, to, I hope, hoping we resurrect it. But man, to be on the stage with Daryl Hammond, Jay Moore at the same time as they're doing their legendary impressions and me being a part of it. I'm like, just pinching myself like, this is just nuts, man. And it all started... By giving a newcomer a ride home, all this stuff happened from just being of service to another person. 
That's I love that. Yeah, Jay Moore. I love. Uh, I can't remember who I was talking to about this not too long ago. Action, the show, Action, Jay Moore's show. And then, uh, oh, <laughs> funny story. My wife and I are in New York. It's probably fifteen years ago. We're like, oh, Daryl Hammond. He's at Caroline's. Let's oh, yeah. let's go. Uh, oh, there's tickets for the Late Show. I remember turning to my wife. What are the odds? The day of the eleven o'clock Late Show or whatever time it was. It was late you know, for Daryl Hammond, and there's still tickets. Oh my God! We buy the tickets. We get excited. We go in there. The New York clubs are a little different than the Michigan clubs. They sit you down. You don't pay to the end. You got to buy the drinks. You got to. Turns out Daryl Hammond's not doing the eleven o'clock show. It's <laughs> he did the first two, but this one was Howard Stern group like dirty show <laughs> oh wow not daryl hammond <laughs> so that, was, that was the time i almost saw or thought i was about to see daryl hammond so that did not turn out well at all <laughs> yeah he he's phenomenal that's a great story he's phenomenal you know i was in uh vancouver canada with jay moore and we did five shows and the off time they had this comedy condo and so we ended up him and i watched season one of this is my third time watching it his first time season one of Mandalorian. Love Mandalorian. Yes. And he's a big Star Wars fan. And then he texted me yesterday. He's like, my favorite part of the whole trip was watching Mandalorian with you. It's just, it was awesome. That's really cool. Awesome. All right. So what else? I didn't know you were in jail. Is that true? Yeah, it was just drug possession. I, I, I've been in jail for a DUI once that got dropped because I tested 0.06. They shouldn't even arrest me, but I shouldn't have drank in anything and drove. But and then one for the drug possession. And then another time for drug paraphernalia, which just, I was a, I was a minor and they let me go. Oh, and the other time was in eighth grade. So I guess four times I've been in jail. Eighth grade. Eighth grade I was selling marijuana. I was selling weed in the eighth grade. And my dad, I always told people I got busted, but it was like, a, I always told people it was like an FBI sting and undercover cops and all this stuff. But the truth is I had an ounce of weed in my, that I was selling in eighth grade, which is crazy. I was a little kid to think of an eighth grader selling pot. But anyway, and it was uh, skunk weed. So it was very smelly. So I stashed it outside in the bushes and I woke up in the morning. It was raining. So it was like seven in the morning. So I went out in the rain in my little tidy whitey underwears and I put the weed down my pants and I come walking in the door. My dad's like, what's that? And he sees it. And I, and I run into my room. I throw it behind my waterbed, <laughs> which I had a waterbed. And he, my dad grabs it. He holds it up an ounce of weed. So he calls the police on me, has me arrested. They come, they handcuff me, fingerprint me, take me to the adult jail. I had to go to juvenile court. And the sentence was they were going to drop all the charges if I didn't get in any trouble for three years. But the part of the agreement was I had to go to counseling every Wednesday. And it was like 45 minutes away. And I still remember it. It was called Pyramid Counseling. And there was a counselor named Hans Dieter was my counselor. And he would, you know, just ask questions, trying to figure out why, you know, what, what did my dad do to me to, you know, make his eight-year-old son a drug user? You know, my, my dad was so pissed. So it backfired on him, actually. I have a new bit about it. So I'm working on that. So you were using it at eight, not just, uh, not just selling? It wasn't just entrepreneurial? Yeah, yeah, I was using it. Okay. So those are my four jails. Nothing, nothing major. Not, you know, nothing. I've never had any major, major trouble besides drugs and alcohol. Have to take a quick break. Got to hide my skunk weed somewhere else. And we're back with Greg Baldwin. We're in the timeline of stand-up or in the middle or before were you at the, uh, did you study at the Groundlings? That was before. So I studied at the Groundlings and then I studied at uh, UCD, Upright Citizens Brigade. And, and then I, had, I was on a little improv team and I loved and hate, hated improv at the same time because it's hard. It is hard. You know, so stand-up. Stand-up's 
is hard and brutal for a long time until you until you get you find your voice. But yeah, I was on a little improv team, and then I found stand up, and then I just I just started doing stand up. But I, I would love to go back and do some more improv. You know, I started doing some good work, and it's tough. You can when you're doing improv. I think it's good whether you're an actor or not. You know, I recommend people take an improv class because you learn how to be spontaneous and be open and and be yourself. You can actually like feel different parts of your brain working, you know, and uh, that I don't normally use. And it's also helped me become a better stand-up because it's allowed me to be spontaneous and creative. And you know, as a stand-up, you have to be present. You have to be, you know, if if, if you're doing a show and the waitress has a plate of drinks and it, they crash all over the floor, you have to be able to stop, call it out, this and that. When I was a beginning comedian, if that would happen, it would ruin my whole show because I was so married to every single word and how to say it. And if one thing happened different, it would I'd bomb. And so improv, it's really good because it you know teaches you how to be spontaneous. And now, you know, I have my joke structures and I have the jokes, but I can go off script. I can play around. If somebody yells something out, I can shred them and come back to it. And uh, improv is just really a valuable skill. Two things. One is I agree. They should have improv as part of either high school or college curriculum that people can learn because I agree it helps in life in general, whether you're going to become you know, a famous improv person or not. It helps in job interviews. It helps in meetings. It helps if you have to present a million things. And I'm so glad to hear because you're the first person I've ever heard say this again, because I went through the same thing when I started doing comedy. If I had like if you're doing like a seven minute set at the club, right? And I'm into a joke. Hey, what? And someone goes, <laughs> that was enough. I, I had to go on to the next joke. Yeah. And yeah. just the same thing. I think that it's like, you know, you put enough time in and eventually someone can do something. You can go do a thousand other things and then just come right back to where you were and then yeah. pick it right back up and go yeah. through it. It's such a fun part of the evolution of doing comedy yeah. that no one tells you about. And it's horrible as you're learning it, experiencing uh, something like that live. It's so stand up was so brutal. I've bombed so I bombed in front of my parents. Oh, God, like so bad. It's just so hard. People used to ask me, do you love stand up? And I remember thinking to myself, like, I fucking hate it. I it's like I have these little moments of laughter and glimpses that it's like golfing. You know, it's like, you you know, you shoot 130, but you hit one onto the green and get a birdie, you know, and it's like that. I have these little moments of like, oh, there's something here in my Deep intuition had told me that this is where I'm supposed to be and this is where I need to go, even though, even though, God, I would have so much anxiety and I would take naps before the show, wake up and be like, oh my God, why am I doing this? This is so brutal. The bombs and the struggling and, you know, and then you do, you sell tickets to your friends to terrible shows and they're like, oh, wow, that was really something, you know, and uh, it was just such a tough road. But now... You know, I have so, so much respect for comedians that make it past two years, two, three years, four years, five years. I have so much respect because I know the pain and the suffering that they went through in order to become a good comedian because it is brutal. But once you get to that, you know, and I, I really feel like I'm really finding my voice now. And I feel real comfortable on stage. I feel at home when I'm on stage. I still get butterflies and, and nervous. But when people laugh and then and then you see their laughter and people's faces and the joy that you bring to them, it's like it is the greatest thing in the world for me now. It is wonderful. I find that if I don't have the butterflies before, I don't do as well. It's that's yeah. part of the energy that converts yeah. when you're on stage. Comedy is like one of those things. I'm, sounds like you agree with me or probably have had similar where however someone sees you the first time, that's how you are forever. If somebody comes to see you early and you bomb, they'll never come. Like you're just a, you're just a bad comedian. If they come and you have a great set and they laugh, 
then it's okay if two more down or something you kind of they go oh we uh yeah that was a rough set but because they know they know no you're better than this yeah but it was like that's why i always hated inviting people yeah until i got really 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 comfortable where i was confident that at least a high percentage of the time i would pull this off if they see i know there's this one guy dan who was like my arch enemy at work comes to one show horrible show you know one of these open mics i just did bad and to this day 20 years later if somebody were to bring it up you go yeah dwaska and i am he's still doing that <laughs> yeah yeah you know what my mom used to say to me she came and i bombed really bad she said to me for years are you still doing those same jokes and i'd be like i gotta go mom I, oh i'd get so pissed i'd be like i gotta go she comes now and she's like she's watched me evolve over the years and now she's like oh my god that was so amazing you were so great and this and that but boy man and then all those friends that i sold tickets to in the early they, none of them come back one of my good friends it's been uh he hasn't come back in uh, nine years he hasn't come see me before and uh it was so traumatizing i guess to uh there's nothing much worse than having to sit through just horrible comedians that don't deserve to be on the stage so i know the trauma that i put these guys through and it's like it's weird because it's like a catch-22 because in order to get stage time at some of these shows when you're new you have to sell tickets then you sell tickets to your friends and then they don't want to come back anymore and you're basically kind of ripping them off because you're you're selling tickets to these really horrible shows Right. But here we are. And then flash forward, you're opening with Jay Moore and Daryl Hammond. You're at the comedy store. So everyone hang in there. It does pay off. <laughs> it pays off. Let me ask you, Jeff, how, I didn't ask you, I, you know, I know that you're interviewing me, but I'm curious, how, how long have you been doing comedy? 20 years I've been doing comedy. It's huh. It's been a little lighter the last, you know, since the pandemic. And I started focusing on the the podcast. I have gigs here and there. I still get a rush for doing it. It's still amazing. You know, you talk about your parents. My dad used to, before he passed away, he used to come and see me all the time, all the time. He loved seeing me. And he would come, he would come to the club and he didn't know like I was a guest there, right? Like I'm just there that weekend, right? (laughs) It's like he would walk up to the window and he'd be all like, because he knew it was at Mark Ridley's and because I'd been doing it for so long, Mark yeah. knew my parents and, you know, the, the club owner knew my parents and like stuff like that. And one day I, I said, Dad, when you have your group come, you have yeah. to can't act like you own the place. He goes, I'll tell them. I'll tell them. I go, Dad, you. I mean, you. You. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> he was just so proud. He was just it was nice. But it was just it was just always funny. Like my mom came to my show and she uh, and I do I do drugstore. You know, I do stuff about my drug addiction and recovery and the, I do the math coach and this and that but and i do this bit about dealing candy when i was a little kid and and the the premise is i'm a candy dealer but it's like drugs you know what i mean so when i was when i was in uh, sixth grade at the end of the joke i say you know what's really bizarre is that i'm clean and so i'm a recovering drug addict i'm clean and sober 15 years and my 80 year old mom is now on marijuana edibles and and uh, which is true which is true and which is totally bizarre i went to the weed shop and when my mom got gummies the weed gummies or whatever and then my mom was in the crowd and i said uh and i you know i can recognize my old behavior and my mom now you know laying around all day and eating junk food and sit dishes everywhere and she's watching reruns of judge judy and i'm like mom you got to get your shit together you know <laughs> like you know and so she's now the one with the drug problem which isn't true but she's the one with the drug problem so and then everybody's laughing and i go my mom's here tonight and i go mom stand up and so my mom stood up everybody applauded and i said i go mom are you high right now 
And the whole place just went nuts. You know, they were just <laughs> laughing. I'm like, oh my God, my mom's baked right now. And then uh, and then I said to my mom, I go, you know what? I got and I told the crowd, I go, doesn't my mom look great for 80 years old? And the whole crowd applauded her. And my mom was so proud. That's so awesome. That's amazing. I love that. That's a great story. It's like how how long, you know, and I you, you said your father passed. I'm I'm sorry, but it's like how long you know they're gonna be around. You know, they're 80. It's like, you know, and it's like you try to cherish these special moments, and then she gets to see her son performing in front of a few hundred people and getting huge applause. And I get to talk to her from the stage. It's these moments that are incredible that I really, really cherish, you know? I love that. Nice, warm feeling. Well, Greg, I can't thank you enough for hanging with me. Thank you for sharing your story. I'm, you know, congrats on 15 years and sober and here's to another 50 plus of those. Thank you. I love your story. It's great. I wish you continued success. Thank you. You know, the one thing, the last thing I, I want to say is that I became a comedian, a standout comedian when I was 52. I mean, 42. I started doing stand. I had been an actor and done some other stuff. I started doing standout comedy when I was 42. People out there, listen, it's never too late to be what you could have been. You know, obviously, I'm not going to be an offensive lineman for the San Francisco 49ers. But, you know, cherish life, do the things on your bucket list that you've always wanted to do. And I think a lot of us have realized that over the pandemic, working in people have worked in terrible jobs and made life changes and stuff. Life is short and precious. Live your best life, make the decisions and make the choices that are going to allow you to live your best life. And hopefully that includes a little bit of service to others. I can't think of a better way to end the interview than on those wise words. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Jeff, man. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. That was comedian Greg Baldwin. How amazing is Greg? So inspirational. What an amazing story. I hope if there's something out there you're still wanting to do, you've been inspired to go for it. Go for it. All right. Well, that amazing conversation's over. So I that means the episode's over. I can't believe it. They fly by. They just fly by. Huge thank you to my guest, Greg Baldwin. And of course, huge thank you to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word. And we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.